Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. While there may have been a slight deviation or two in this month's schedule, uh, I'm going to attribute that to my moving apartments, which has been an absolute joy, as I'm sure anybody else that's moved knows all too well. Uh, But this week, I return to the realm of apartment horror with today's chat highlighting Michael Winner's 1977 religious horror film, The Sentinel. Based on Jeffrey Konvitz's 1974 novel and co-screenwriter of the same name, The Sentinel follows troubled fashion model Allison Parker, played by Christina Raines, whose life is turned upside down when she moves into a Brooklyn brownstone apartment, which is actually a gateway to hell. But it isn't just me chatting this week about the demonic apartment horror of The Sentinel as I'm once again joined by returning friend of the show and writer for sites such as Fangoria, Bloody Disgusting, Manor Vellum, Rue Morgue, and more, Pat Brennan. Pat, welcome to the show, man. Hey, man. It's good to be back four times now. That's So what is this? This is now um, final chapter. So my next, if I appear again one more time, Time. It's going to be very divisive, and um, it's going to have a lot of people split on whether they hate me or love me. And then the sixth time will be a well, classic. We already chatted about the uh, the grudge, what was it, 2020 or 2021? So we'll have to find something even more divisive. But to be fair, a very productive conversation wow. we had on that film. That's true. I forgot we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still, I'll die on that hill that that movie is... That movie That's is That's the best way to fine. put it, right? That movie is completely <laughs> fine. <laughs> completely fine. That's the thing. You know, that's why I, I love having people that on that, you know, not really knowing guests the first time for the most part, but, you know, through chatting with people, you know, you start to get the sense of like, oh, these are the types of films that they like, or maybe at, at the very least, they're open to chatting about films that are not overly beloved, right? We can only do so many podcasts on... Uh, you know, yeah. horror movies that are on that top 100 list on IMDb or Letterboxd or whatever. So once in a while, it's always nice to highlight yeah. a film that, you know, people don't have a great love for and not to, you know, pick things because, oh, this will be divisive. This will do great in numbers and things like that. But more so just trying to find positive elements of a film that overall might not be the best, but deserves a little more credit than uh, it probably does. It probably gets in overall. But, you know, I think that kind of leads into us yeah. talking about The Sentinel today, which is a film that I was completely unfamiliar with, be straight up about that, um, and was not really sure what to think about it other than that premise of, you know, it's religious horror, takes place in an apartment. But I think notably, it's really interesting when this movie comes out, because this is 1977, and, you know, just one year prior to that, The Omen came out. And three years prior to that, I believe it was The Exorcist yeah. was released. The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby. They, they also, the, the novels that all these are based on all came out in around that same time. Um, <clears throat> but um, the novel that, yeah, The Sentinel came, or The Sentinel's based on, to me, it came <laughs> out <this> suspiciously <laughs> um, <laughs> close to when those uh, those classics came out because 
to me, like this is a movie that I find um I I I think my opinion of it changes each day. Like sometimes I'm like, hell yeah, this has got some really cool stuff in it. But then other times I I get really frustrated by um certain elements of it that feel really cynical and um almost mean-spirited, I think. Um it's I don't know. It's an interesting movie, and I I think I know my main problem with it, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, I guess I, I have a pretty good idea of the moment or element of the film you're referring to, because uh, it was definitely one that gave me pause. And this is an int- again. I came to this movie fresh, didn't know anything about it. Obviously, hadn't seen it previously, and it's a movie that I think is interesting because you can see it in a couple of different ways. Right, you can see it as a film that is attempting to cash in on this this you know period of demonic possession religious horror however you want to frame it and it's coming at the end almost of the height of some of the best examples of that in film and you know yeah. it could be viewed as okay they're trying to get in on that craze before it completely becomes unviable which you know realistically when is demonic or religious horror ever not going to be viable uh, to a genre of film? Yeah. <laughs> but I think at the other side of things, you could look at it as, oh, here's a director that is coming from a background in exploitation films, right? Because he was basically Charles Bronson's go-to director with Death Wish movies and whatnot and just came from that yeah. side of things. And so at the same time, I was thinking, oh, maybe this is a director that's going to try to take their own style or their own, you know, genre influences from the exploitation side of things and apply it to a horror movie because they think maybe they can offer something that was previously or to the best of their knowledge or audience's knowledge, like had not been explored in this particular subgenre of horror. Uh, and I think, you know, the more we unpack the film and, you know, the director, Michael Winner himself and some of the uh, choice words that others had of him, I think that'll become a little I more clear. I think this clear, is a movie but- where everyone who worked on it hated each other for yeah. the most part. <laughs> yeah. Um, from like from cast members to, you know, production to the yeah, and and it shows. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I guess before we dive too deep into the Sentinel in general, like how do you feel about apartment horror? What do you think are some of the strengths of that subgenre that uh make it a standout in horror? Well, I mean, I think apartment horror is interesting because of how kind of unnerving living in that kind of setting can be. Um, in some ways, like I think back to my time when like living in a bigger city, I used to, I lived in Toronto for five years in like a, a brownstone, almost similar to this one. Um, <clears throat> and there's this strangeness to it in that people even though you're separated by walls, it's like your lives kind of bleed into each other. And, and the longer that you spend in, a, in an apartment building like that, the more you kind of get to know your neighbors without even speaking to them. <laughs> um, you get to know like, you know, if they snore or if they, you know, what their, God, what their sex lives are like, or their, <laughs> yeah. their order, you know, their social, social lives because of how many times they bring people home or family stuff or God, their musical tastes. Um, and sometimes that can be terrifying. Um, we once had this neighbor who lived above us who um, he just, you could, 
I would come home from work and I could hear him um, like basically like screaming at somebody who was like in the apartment with him. Um, and what I ended up finding out was, so like I would hear two people and then I found out from what we had this one like nosy neighbor named Ron who was just one. like, he would, oh, the dude would always be like out on the stoop smoking. And he was like a <laughs> nice guy, but also was just a total shit disturber and knew <laughs> everyone's business. But he ends up telling me one day because I, I brought up like, yeah, he's yelling at a yelling at someone like I think maybe like a lady who lives with him or something. And he's like, that guy doesn't leave his apartment and he, he doesn't have anyone living with him. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, he's doing those. If there's no one who lives with him and no one comes to see him, he's doing those voices. Oh my god! And I'm like, you've got to be, you're fucking kidding me! And it was terrifying that realization. Um, those are some Norman Bates skills. A hundred percent. And I think that's one of the scary things about apartment horror is is that um, you never know um, who's in the building with you. Um, and there's just the, the I don't know, the, the degrees of separation is is uh, is quite small when you think about it, because you're all in this building together and and uh, and you're all living on top of each other. It's I don't know. I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I miss that building. <laughs> that's definitely the element that I appreciate the most about apartment horror in that it's not always necessarily like the director weaponizing the environment to make it scary, but it's more so important that if, a and I guess it goes for any movie that's set in an apartment, it's that, do you capture that lives of others aspect? Do you fill that building with people that are, you know, interesting, quirky, eccentric, you know, ominous, are they up to no good? That type of thing and doing it in a way that makes them feel like real people. And on some like level for everybody that's ever lived in an apartment, because like I lived in an apartment growing up for like 16 years. And it's the type of thing where it's like, again, you never have to, I think you would even just said it, like you don't have to necessarily ever speak to those people. But again, because of the proximity, good chance like the walls are not as thick as they should be. Uh, and so you end up kind of, whether you want it or not, it's being forced upon you. Uh, you're being given a slice of others' lives in yeah. a way that, you know, hopefully is mundane and you never think about it after a week of living there, or it becomes a factor that you're constantly dealing with, whether it be they're too loud, whether it be that they're, you know, having two-sided conversations with themselves <laughs> upstairs or whatever. Um, I think that that is the element of apartment horror that you really have to get right. And that's something that I think the Sentinel, before it ever goes into the religious horror side of things or, you know, the gates of hell aspect, I think that it nails that in a way that, is true to the era and the director and knowing their body of work that came before it. Like this is a great example in my mind. And granted, I'm perhaps not as well-versed in seventies uh, films in general as I should be, but like, I get the sense that this is an example of the trashy side of 70s cinema in that it's showing very interesting and unique people, but it's showing you more like taboo elements of people, things that maybe are shocking that are done. So to an illicit a reaction, such as being shocking or maybe not disturbing. Oh yeah. Disturbing. I'll say that Um, in terms of just people's behavior. And it's not so much being given a view of what their day in the life might be, but given like 
what a day inside perhaps their bedroom is like, uh, something to that effect that it's going for that shock. And, you know, I don't know necessarily if you get those moments, if you don't have a director that had previously primarily dealt in exploitation, even if it was only in a different genre than horror. Yeah, it definitely has that feel of, um, it's kind of got like a blue collar feel to it. It's, um, and I, yeah, I think you, you definitely nailed it there. How, um, the more seedy aspects of, uh, you know, the, the different characters that are, um, brought in, into the story, um, are approached in a way that's, <clears throat> well, definitely like an exploitation film sort of way. Like it's just kind of matter of fact, um, slightly judgy, <laughs> but also so yeah, done to um, shock <laughs> and yeah, Alyssa, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's religious horror by way of um, like 42nd street. It's, it's kind of, it's interesting that way. <laughs> I like that. It's able to take something that's supposed to be very glamorous, right? You've got this uh, Brooklyn Brownstone apartment. Of course, it's going to be super expensive. It's supposed to be very nice and whatnot. And then it's filled with elements that, you would assume are the behaviors and the kind of activities of people that were in a lot of Michael Winner's other films that show the seedier side of New York or, or something of that yeah, extent, yeah. right? And I think that that kind of combining of going against the expectations that people might have, like I even found to be kind of surprising. I was just like, oh shit, we're going here with this? But I got to say overall, like even though the place does go, the film itself kind of tackles some lewd characters or lewd aspects of their lives or just being lewd for the sake of eliciting a shock, which, you know, after one or two instances, you're kind of like, okay, clearly this is just trying to elicit a reaction. Oh, the amount of times that it's like the, the two lesbian characters yep. where it's like, isn't it crazy and weird that they're <laughs> lesbians? It's like, there's like, they hit you over the head with that like five times. Yeah. I think they literally, it's almost as if like, oh, and they're lesbians. Ooh. Right. <laughs> That's, yeah, by the third time, I'm just like, can you just shut the fuck up about the, yeah. it's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also 1977, so I guess, I don't know, or 74, I can't remember. But I think that it's interesting that they begin it with the aspect of apartment horror that, you know, I myself just found to be, uh, a parent, which is like dealing with landlords. And right from the jump, you're dealing with like two different types of landlords, but both are scummy in different ways, right? You see that uh, Allison deals with one that, you know, is not in comparison to, you know, her longtime boyfriend, uh, Michael, who's trying to get his own apartment, right? He's dealing with this guy that is talking about how this is the best deal in the city and how it's it's definitely worth $1,000 a month, which, you know, if I could get an apartment that looks like that for $1,000 a month, I would jump at that based on what, what I'm paying now for a three-bedroom. Maybe that's the thing that gives you a bad taste in your mouth watching this movie is just like, Jesus Christ, you're how much? And it's like four bedrooms yeah. and two stories and everything's made of oak. Yeah. <laughs> an apartment that has an upstairs and a downstairs in yeah. Manhattan or whatever. <laughs> Um, but I like that, you know, from the jump, we're given a view of the two sides of things. We're, we're shown what that process is like in the more lavish part of like uptown or downtown, whichever one's nicer, Manhattan. And then you get to go to Brooklyn and you get to see, you know, a nice building, but it's a little more quieter side of New York uh, itself. And, 
you know, seeing the scummy landlord that Michael deals with where, and then you see the one that uh, Allison's dealing with and it's different experiences, but at the same time, there's still something that's not entirely right about that interaction. Um, You get that moment where, you know, she's kind of been sold on this place. And I think that it starts at $600 a month and she goes, well, it's kind of out of my budget. And then the next breath, it drops down to $400 a month. And it's kind of like, wait a sec, did I miss hear what they said? Is she being gaslit in that moment? And it's the type of thing that I really like about apartment horror in that, you know, it's noticeable, but it's still subtle enough that you can't be that person that's like, well, why didn't they, you know, why didn't they call that out more or be more aggressive about that? But it's like, you're a single person trying to rent an apartment that if you're not a high powered lawyer, you're going to go for the you know cheapest option that comes to you. Um, and that's yeah. the element that I think right from the jump kind of grounds you in a world that at least is presenting a familiar scenario before it goes into the realm of where it very quickly goes. That is, uh, you know, horrifying at times from a, you know, horror genre standard, but then also like the personal hell that Allison deals <laughs> with uh, on a, on her own sort of, you know, grappling with family and whatnot. It's definitely an interesting subgenre that I think like, I don't know, for making predictions might um, <laughs> kind of explode in the the coming decades because the, the idea of the, uh, you know, homeowner horror, mm. I think is becoming less and less, of something that a lot of us can look forward to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of us can be, can relate to um, these situations where you're trying to find an apartment and you're just trying to find a decent place to live and, you know, dealing with um, landlords and there's that air of like desperateness, um, desperation to, um, you know, what you're trying to do. It's, uh, it's all very, very scary before you find out the place is even, you know, haunted or possessed by ghost clowns or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing. I'm worried that uh, those kind of those Reddit posts about horrible landlords or those things like that. It's just making the stock go down on apartment horror films because nothing can compare to some of those threads that get going about people's, uh, you know, living uh, experiences and whatnot. But I like that, again, like this film captures that lives of others aspect and it does fill that building with this eccentric cast of characters, you know, granted, there is that depiction of the lesbian couple, which Michael Winter just can't leave alone. Uh, and li- <laughs> quite literally, the first time you meet them, one of the characters just begins openly masturbating in front of Allison, which is Beverly like, D'Angelo in her yeah. film debut. Yeah. All I can keep thinking of is like, like Mrs. Griswold. No. <laughs> <laughs> It feels right at home in something like an exploitation film, but at the yeah. same time, like being presented right out of the gate like that, when you compare it to what I was just talking about, about a situation that's familiar, and then you follow it with that, and it's just kind of like it escalates from there in a way that almost takes you out of it. But then at the same time, you know, the next character that's introduced, I believe, is Mr. Uh, Chazen, right? Who's just this sweet, friendly old man that comes down and wants to be Allison's Burg- best friend. Yeah. And then, Played you by know- Burgess Meredith, who's just like, I think this is, I don't know, the eighth time he spoiler plays the devil yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> in his career. But he just like, he's the, to me, he's like the shining star of the movie. Like he steals every scene he's in. He's so charming. And, and the, and Meredith, himself is such a chameleon when you like think about some of the other roles that he's had in his career um from like the penguin in the 1960s batman to obviously you know mickey and uh in the rocky franchise like he's just he's 
so good in this movie. I love him so much. But I love that, you know, he's able to facilitate that role that, again, kind of finds the viewer being like, well, is there an ulterior motive behind him being so friendly? Or is he just like this lonely old guy that has a million pets, right? I mean, the next instance that he comes and gets a tour of her apartment, like the next night or that night, she's uh, attending a birthday party for his cat with all these other strange people. But everybody that is apparently there for a birthday party for this cat. And the way in which that's presented, it's like, okay, this is very, clearly very bizarre. You can't argue with that. At the same time, though, like these are all essentially lonely people that are supposedly living in this building. And it's like, well, maybe this is just like the microcosm, a little microcosm that's been discovered in this corner of New York or on the shore or whatnot. Like, I think that the ability to take a space and then fill it with people that are, you know, interesting or unique or weird is just a quality of all movies that take place in apartments. I really like. And I think that as far as the setup goes for this movie, they do. He does a fine job, I think, of setting up the apartment, of setting up the players, and it's maybe how he carries a couple of the other subgenre influences into that that maybe for me don't necessarily work as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that you know the setup for this movie, considering you know all those movies that we mentioned that were really successful in dabbling in this subgenre and whatnot, whether that be apartment or uh, demonic religious and those those types of horror films. I think that this does at least a good job at, you know, getting a foundation off of those, but at the same time, achieving something in its own right. Um, I, of course, can't speak to uh, it being an adaptation of the novel, but I think overall, like, just from this idea of you're going to be in this space for primarily uh, the entire runtime and filling it with those unique people, it does a fine job, I think, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely at its strongest in the first definitely the first half um and then i think the the third act it definitely starts feeling um a little bit rushed i think like the the pacing gets kind of thrown thrown off um we also the the main character i find like she loses agency so quickly in the movie um and for someone who is going to serve like a pretty huge role at the end it's like, I don't know. It, it, she just, she, you just feel so outside of her. Whereas, you know, like usually with a protagonist, you kind of feel like you're inside their head in a movie, and like she just feels completely. I've, I found kind of like, not alien by the end of it, but it's just like she's given barely anything to say and do other than, you know, look pale and scream and stuff in those in the last like twenty minutes of the movie. Um, I mean, do we want to go through the a little bit of a more of a plot synopsis about how how we get there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is and I'll get into that. It's that you know, in the early on, she is portrayed as being this very you know grappling with the recent death of her father and is very traumatized by that. And you learn, of course, in the backstory of why she's attending the funeral of her father, but she can't walk out with them to you know put the grave into the ground and whatnot, the actual burial. And you're kind of like, well, that's pretty fucking weird. Like if her mother's capable of walking out there, why isn't she? And then you get this really disturbing backstory where, you know, she walks in on her like elderly father who must be like 70 in that scene or something. And she walks in and he's having this orgy with these two women 
who are like feeding him cake or it's like this food fetishy orgy, which, you know, to be fair, would pretty much traumatize me. And I would assume anybody else if they walked in on a parent engaged in that. Yeah, it's very much in the vein of uh, I think if I seen it's like I remember watching Shining as a little kid and um, that one scene of the uh, the dude in like the dog costume and the the guy's head just lifting up out of his crotch and and you're like seeing that as you know a 10 year old and you don't know what the hell that guy's doing but you but your brain is filling the blanks and you're like and it just it's that weird gross feeling that you can't explain at that age i think if i had watched that scene um well at that age it would have full-on broke me or at least had a similar it, <laughs> yeah. it felt very much in the same vein but i think that that scene you know for as shocking and disturbing as that can be you know it informs a great deal about that character and it's how you know it's presenting this woman with or at that point i believe she's a young girl um, presenting her with this situation that her brain is half processing in the in the moment mm-hmm. like it's clear that she is processing it as being shocking but at the same time you know is so aghast at what she's seen that what is her solution is that she runs to the bathroom then and attempts to commit suicide um, which then informs the viewer of you know why she has been viewed as this troubled person that's grappling with that and how you know I think it's important to highlight again, like this is a movie that's set in the late seventies and the view and stigmatization of, you know, people that are dealing with mental health issues, subjects like suicide, these very taboo subjects that inform why people view her the way that she does. But at the same time, I think that the film does a good job of just establishing her and her actions in that regard and why that moment really does inform a great deal of her decision-making early on in the film. It's kind of uh, akin to like not too long after that, there's this scene where her and her boyfriend are kind of arguing about her wanting her own space. She wants to have her own apartment. And initially it was kind of like, well, this is like your long, I think they've been dating for what, two years or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, if it's been multiple years, are you really going to go and buy your own apartment or rent your own apartment if you've got this massive, nice kind of high rise apartment? But then it kind of ties back to this line of dialogue that she has with her mother, right? Where the mother says, um, after that happened, right? And got divorced from her own husband. It was like, she didn't have anywhere to go essentially. Um, And I think that she kind of said like, she didn't want that to ever happen to her herself, Allison. And it's like, no, it's important for me to have my own place. Even if, in this relationship would be viewed as, oh, the the boyfriend is the the breadwinner of their relationship, right? Um, and I think that yeah. that sort of is informed again by that traumatic moment. And in terms of like that aspect of the film, I thought that that mm-hmm. was put together well. So, you know, like you had said later on in the film when she loses her agency and she starts making decisions that are kind of just like on a whim, it seems, they don't seem to be informed by anything that's when her character begins to fall apart a little bit for me. Yeah. Did you, did you think that um, I assumed that she was also abused by her father? Um, like either. Cause I, like, I just thought it was interesting that cause we're basically, you know, we're, we're shown that she, or we're told that she's had you know, multiple attempted suicides and usually people who are like victims of, of abuse at a young age, that's 
you know, that can be something that they struggle with later on and all the, you know, complicated feelings that come out of um, that kind of trauma. So I feel like I, I don't know if it was something that was being implied or, or not, or if they just didn't want to go down that road, um, down that road. I don't know why I just made a pet cemetery <laughs> reference during something as, uh, controversial is what we're talking about right now but um yeah i don't know i i think it would make sense that that was something that she dealt with and maybe i'm i'm kind of happy that michael winters didn't um didn't film anything involving that considering yeah how the, the, the sensitivity i don't think he would bring that would be needed to a situation like that uh I yeah don't think that would be there i think that's why we're you know kind of uh, being a little more laid back in that regard and that we're laughing at the idea of Michael Winters trying to tackle something that deserves a great deal of, you know, sensitivity in how you approach it. And he is clearly not the person to do that. Not um, the guy. And, not at all. <laughs> and, you know, that's the other thing is that I don't know if they were implying that. And I'm not saying like I do or don't agree with that. But I think overall, like knowing him and his sensibilities with how he handles things in this film and granted the way in which he chose to portray that, you know, that food filled orgy, if you will. Um, I don't know if he was somebody that would be able to steer away from that. You know what I mean? It's That's the type of guy point, where I'm yeah. like, if he's going for the shock, I'm surprised that we didn't have a scene like that. My mm-hmm. personal guess would be, again, I haven't read the novel, but the writer, the author of the novel, obviously co-wrote the screenplay, co-wrote the script, was involved. True. Those two butted heads. It would not surprise me if Michael Winters wanted to include something along those lines, but the author was just like, uh, yeah, absolutely not. If that was not in the original, right? That would be something that would be, you know, completely unnecessary to add, given the fact that, you know, if it wasn't in the original or implied in the original, the notion that he was going to let someone that he already doesn't agree with directing it, uh, let alone the actual like changes that he wants to make and the directions that he wants to take with that narrative. The idea that he would allow him to do like, I think that would have been a deal breaker for them if it was like, well, if you want to go down this route and then, you know, graphically depict it or anything along those lines, it's kind of like a little too heavy, I think for this. Um, but I don't think that it's a, uh, I think it's definitely in the realm, you know, of her suffering numerous types of moments that could be triggering to her mental health, right? Let alone walking on her father like that. But you have to imagine, like, if the father's going to treat the mother in that regard, then it probably doesn't, you know, the daughter probably doesn't catch a lot of of positive interactions with her father. And he does strike her at one point, right? Yes, he does. If I remember correctly. So it's, you know, and he's pretty quick to do that. So I guess it's, you know, it is important. We don't need to get into the details. She had a crappy crappy life. So it's it's definitely understandable why she would want to have a spot that she could escape to in case this relationship with her, with um, Michael, played by... I almost said Susan Sarandon. Um, but. <laughs> I literally this morning wrote, I was going down the character list and I was like, Susan Sarandon, and then immediately had to delete it. I was just like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You must get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Who we've end up finding out too, although it's kind of thrown away a little bit that like she's yeah. right to want a place to escape to because mm-hmm. it turns out he's also killed his wife <laughs> previous to, to being with her. 
So this is a pretty busy movie in terms of the plot, there, right? Because, you know, you yeah. have, again, you have what we just discussed, but then at the same time, like her long-term boyfriend, uh, his previous wife supposedly committed suicide, right? And it, whether it was he had a hand in it, was it a reaction to, you know, him clearly having an extramarital thing with, you know, Allison on the side before that they wanted to split because his wife didn't want to divorce him. And then she, you know, is uh, either killed herself or uh, accidentally died. And it's the type of thing where that element of the movie, they they really do highlight in the middle of it, right? There's probably a good three or four scenes between, you know, Michael, the detectives that are investigating him, how that factors into the relationship with Allison and whatnot. And then it kind of just like throws it to the side and moves on to the next thing. And then it fully leans into the religious horror aspect of it. And at times, I definitely find this movie tries to do far too much and it doesn't really connect everything in a way that makes it feel like this is, again, the sort of lives of others that we're going through the motions of this relationship at different points. It kind of just feels like a series of events that the characters themselves are experiencing, but aren't necessarily reacting or growing or being changed by them. Um, you know, like I think especially when that comes up with the detectives, that I don't really think Allison and Michael necessarily talk about that a great deal, right? You would think that that would be a bigger point of contention in their relationship that then furthermore, you know, shows that Michael's guilty through his reaction to, oh, well, you know, I'm this big high profile lawyer guy. I'm not going to have a woman in my life that's like challenging me or whatever kind of power dynamic that I'm sure was a uh, an element of his relationship with his uh, now deceased wife. And it's the type of thing where you're like, well, what's the purpose then of highlighting this if this is not going to be as, you know, intricate to the narrative or as important to the narrative as all the other craziness that's going on? Yeah, it's it's a movie that I think, um, honestly, I mean, like before the show, we were talking about like movies being too long <laughs> right now. <laughs> Just a couple old men talking about you know, <laughs> whatever happened to the 90-minute movie. Yep. Um, but in this case, it's a 90-minute movie, and it probably needed 20 more minutes to to flush that stuff out. That's definitely a great point. One of the few movies that comes about that's like 90, 92, 93 minutes long, but it's like, no, you need 15, 20 extra minutes to like flesh these characters out. Yeah. Um, just so that way you can make it seem as if they're, uh, as you said, like be more present in their own situation. A lot of the time it's people reading lines, I find, and then people around them are like, well, I'm either going to be happy by this news or upset by this news. And that's like the extent of the emotional investment almost sometimes in these scenes to the degree that I end up being not really interested in some of the uh, conflicts that rise up. It kind of just ends up being this thing where I'm like, well, I'm waiting for you to get back to the horror element of this because the sort of drama kitchen sink element of the relationship, I never find to be all that interesting given how long they dedicate to that. Yeah. Their relationship feels kind of like the, like the polar opposite of um, Mia Farrow and John Cassavetti's relationship in Rosemary's baby. Like those two characters. Um, and I mean, the, the acting prowess of those two are, you know, it's a bit, higher but it just it, i don't know you um you really get a lived in sense with them um in the in that movie um whereas with this it's just um i don't know like i found that christina reigns i mean once again she's not given a heck of a lot 
a heck of a lot to do in this. But also, um, oh, now I'm blanking on uh, Sarandon's first name, but um, the guy Chris. who plays Michael, Chris Sarandon, yeah, who, you know, we all love from like Fright Night and Child's Play. But like, he is just, all he does is be a dick and. And he's also kind of like he's just he just stands around in suits with a shitty mustache. Yeah. <laughs> and like there's just there's nothing there's not even a chem any chemistry between them. Yeah. It's 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 just really weird. It's like these are the people we're supposed to like care about and and feel like close to. It just I don't know, it didn't didn't work. It feels like a relationship that you don't need to do any digging into to understand the dynamics. This is a guy yeah. that, you know, is clearly very wealthy lawyer who probably has a good amount of power in the parameters of New York City. And this is the lovely fashion model. But they, yeah, they feel like cardboard cutouts of what those people are supposed to look like. Yeah. It kind of um, just feels feel like, like they went from the script of being like, here's a general way we're going to describe these people. And then, yeah. you know, outside of specifically... Uh, Allison's, you know, traumatic past and whatnot, and her struggles with mental health and things of that nature. Wh- like we don't really know much about her outside of that, and yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you can have characters that obviously grapple with those things, but I feel like to make them feel believable, there needs to be something more than that. They can't just be a character that's defined by their trauma and whatnot and their, you know, past and dealing with those mental health struggles. I feel like there needs to be something more than that. Cause otherwise it comes off as feeling like kind of manipulative, right? Oh, let's be extra sympathetic for this person that has been dealing with these things, which not to say you shouldn't be, but it's just like, it does, it feels like a very artificial sort of, here's why you should care about this person rather than, you know, showing us why we should care about them. Um, And yeah, Michael at the same time is a character that I'm kind of like, uh, what does he do? Like you said, other than stand around and just argue with detectives about something that, you know, it, yeah. the longer he talks, it's more apparent that he's guilty. <laughs> it's so strange that for a, for an actor who just like kind of exudes this um, magnetism and like almost like machismo and in, in movies like Fright Night, um, he just feels like the complete opposite of that in this. And I don't know, maybe no, I'm overthinking this character. No, it's just not good in this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. It's not. I think we can. We can. It's fair to say that he is just yeah. the character's not good. He doesn't necessarily bring anything to that character that is like other than the shitty mustache. Like I'm not really sure what the direction was for that character, but it definitely needed something other than just being like this dickhead that stands around a lot. Because again, like you would think that if you're going to present this plot that involves like, oh, did he or did he not kill his wife? You have to present him as somebody that you can't see him doing that as to question that or to challenge that. You know, I think about um, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's character. There's a whole point of contention of, oh, did he or did he not kill his wife? And the reason that you're able to sort of like question that up until one part of the movie, it's like, well, you're presenting this guy that, if you are watching him on screen for more than 30 seconds, you're like, oh, that guy could never hurt somebody for real. Mm -hmm. And so like creating that doubt in the viewer's mind is what makes that sort of boilerplate character plot interesting because you're challenging the expectation of what you would assume somebody that would murder their wife would do. But with him, Mm -hmm. it's like, you're not given anything other than him just being a dick 
and saying, I didn't do anything wrong, which it's like, what is the number one thing that everybody that's guilty say? I didn't do anything. Like, that's the type of thing where it's just like, you have to give I us didn't more kill my wife. That. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's <laughs> like, I'm trying to think of positive things now because I feel like I've been, and like, even some of the positives um, I I don't want to give the movie credit for like like the um the aesthetic is very like pleasing to me I love that 70s aesthetic but I don't I mean once again it's not it's not like it I don't think it was necessarily um you know this huge achievement by the art department it's just like this is what people looked like in the 70s and these are what <laughs> apartments looked like and I do love the the spot that they found for the apartment building that she uh, that she lives in is is kind of uh is gorgeous and creepy and and uh and all that but once again it's like i don't know it does a good job i i agree it does a good job of capturing a slice of new york in the 70s right i think that again talking about this in the context of apartment horror he creates at least or captures what feels very grounded in that in the sense of you know capturing the period Again, filling that unit with all of these wild characters and whatnot. And I will say there are moments in this that I think he utilizes the horror aspect very well. One particular scene is when she goes to investigate the apartment above her, which, you know, she complains to the landlord, oh, somebody's always walking around and making a ton of noise up there. Lo and behold, we find out the the entire building, other than her and the blind oh. priest that lives upstairs, is uh, vacant, right? And she yeah. gets a tour of it, and it's filled with cobwebs. But that night, once again, she hears somebody walking around, and when she investigates, you know, she sees a zombified corpse of her father walking at, towards her and whatnot. And, you know, she yeah. stabs it numerous times, which is probably the best example of practical work in the film. Like, that well, really and, is great looking, that moment. And Dick Smith, the... Um uh, speaking of religious horror, the 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 man behind um, the practical effects, uh, makeup effects in uh, The Exorcist, which to me are still some of the, like, uh, like they still stand up today and I think will stand up a hundred million years from now. <laughs> um, but he was responsible for a lot of those, um, a lot of those gags. And yeah, there's, there's moments like at one point when, uh, when uh, I think Chris Randon's face starts like cracking and bleeding, like it's been exposed to, like it's almost, yeah, like it, there's some really great uh, practical gags there that, that make you, you cringe. That's for sure. There is also this sort of almost like Fulci-esque logic to the portrayal of the demons and, you know, the zombies that are a part of that and whatnot that I actually really like. Um, I thinking primarily about, a scene that, you know, I would, it's not a stretch to say is like clearly channeling Rosemary's baby more than any other scene in that, which is the scene when she attends that birthday party for Mr. Chazen's cat, right? And she's yeah. basically on the floor and she's looking up at all of these people that are doing all these bizarre dances and chanting and these things. Like, clearly it's supposed to be resemblant of in Rosemary's baby, that moment when, you know, you're having that, uh, that, that sort of dreamlike rape scene, right? And they're doing that in a different context, but I think that that sort of logic in whether it be, you know, this realm that's within the apartment itself, the fact that maybe you can't trust everything that you're seeing, I think that that sets it up nicely in terms of like, okay, then you're going to have this zombified scene with the father. And then again, it's followed up by the fact that 
people can't really trust her. Or they feel that they can't trust her depictions of things or her recollection of events based on, again, the stigmatization that is tied to her having those mental health issues and struggles and things. So there is this sort of floaty logic to things mm-hmm. and the reality that's there that I think is intriguing. Um, and also like one little detail about when she encounters her father as a zombie is that when she's trying to run away from him, right? She knocks over a table and there's like 10,000 razor blades that scatter everywhere, which clearly is tying into the fact that, you know, she's had multiple suicide attempts. I think that that scene is so well done. And again, capturing, utilizing the location, capturing her own sort of mental state, tapping into things that are unresolved in her own, you know, dealing with that past trauma. And then we don't get really anything else in the movie that's like that. And I think that as good as that scene is, it becomes a bummer, though, that the movie is not littered with moments like that, that are so personal to her at the same time that are, you know, genuinely frightening. You get to see the zombified man who begins leaking everywhere because he gets stabbed a bunch. Uh, But the fact that we didn't get more scenes like that, that were supposed to be more personal to the character themselves, which, if anything would make us understand that character more. Yeah. You know, I think the more I've heard you talk about the the, um, the aspects of the movie that work in terms of it being, you know, apartment horror, the more I think I agree with you. Like, the its strength is kind of like that apartment horror subgenre um, setting and um, kind of the, the, the things it does in that sandbox. I think the, the thing that, as someone who like really loves religious horror, maybe the sour taste in my mouth is partly because I feel like they, they half asked that so much in this movie. Like we find out that, you know, there's a, there's a priest that lives upstairs played by um, uh, John Carradine. And so he's the Sentinel and there's like, turns out the, you know, the apartment is a, doorway to hell and the sentinels the only person keeping like who's blocking that doorway and stopping the uh the demons and whatnot um from like passing through into our world but but he's gonna die soon and they need a new sentinel and the whole thing is we find out that she is um i don't know the universe has kind of like pulled her there because she's been chosen to to be the next sentinel um but we find out it's like so she's been chosen because of her multiple suicide attempts and literally at the end of the movie when she's so she she um the big reveal when she finds out it's a portal to hell she's being surrounded by burgess meredith and the quote-unquote demonic masses which we'll get into because there's a lot of <laughs> lot to unpack there obviously <laughs> absolutely um but they're all trying to get her to kill herself so that she can come and, you know, live with them. And then, uh, yeah, John Carradine's priest character and, and uh, like some Catholic Cardinal show up the help and they're like, listen, lady, <laughs> you've tried to commit suicide. So your soul is damned. But if you become the Sentinel, you'll be redeemed. And she's just like, yeah, okay, cool, and and becomes the sentinel, and 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 there's just like there's such an emphasis on, um, <laughs> you are a broken person who has tried to end their life multiple times, and that 
is wrong and you are wrong and you should be ashamed of yourself, but we'll make you, f- we'll redeem you yeah. if you, you know, if you do this thing. And it just like, it leaves a real icky taste in my mouth. Um, it is, I guess, fairly accurate <laughs> when it comes to uh, the Catholic view on, on, uh, on suicide. But what I find frustrating about this as someone who enjoys um, religious horror is that it, it just, I don't believe that its intention is true in terms of like, it doesn't have something that it believes in. Like I find religious horror either falls on two sides of the fence. It's either something like the exorcist where it's talking about faith from the point of view of, you know, a true believer, or it's someone it's coming from someone who is, you know, not a believer and is trying to expose the horrors and the hypocrisy of, of religion. And I find either side is, is interesting and, 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 you know, relevant when done well. And, and because like people, when they're, you know, when they, whichever side of the fence they fall on, they're bringing like a tremendous amount of passion and, and belief to it. And that can make for some really interesting filmmaking. And this movie, it's just like, it doesn't believe in anything yeah. <laughs> in my opinion. Like it just feels very much like, uh, Oh, religious horror is very popular right now. We'll throw a priest in there and we'll make, we'll put in some demons, but it doesn't really, it cares more about getting, you know, making some money than it does to actually say something about faith or, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it very much feels like a spark notes understanding and uh, deployment of the religious horror aspect. Cause I mean, the way I see it, that this movie didn't need to have any of the religious aspects to it, and it could have been just as effective as it just being an apartment horror film. You could still have the same idea. It's a gateway to hell that, or a portal to hell that essentially preys upon the tenants that have traumatic pasts in those things. And it could have been a whole movie about her grappling with that, and you could have still had this reveal that, oh, everybody in the building is actually you know uh, deceased murderers from back in the day and whatnot. And, you know, you could have a whole movie about that that is devoid of the religious elements or at least maybe the depth with which it prioritizes and delves into like, oh, this is there's a religious reason for this and you have to abide by these things. Otherwise, you know, this all falls apart. And it just feels like a very phoned in attempt at including religious horror, which is why I think for me it doesn't work at all. And it's the element of the film that feels the most convoluted, like the the reasoning behind her being the next sentinel you know michael uncovering the the whole conspiracy of she needs to be the next sentinel because of this and that and this is what happened with all these people before her and you know it all comes together at the you know the 12th hour to the degree that you're kind of like rolling your eyes essentially at it and like you'd said there's no justification for the inclusion other than you know being a plot device and a poorly constructed one at that i think because at the end of the day, it's not saying anything. There's no other than, you know, apparently if you don't, you know, stop the demonic forces or the gates of hell from opening, uh, you're going to go to hell yourself for being a sinner who tried to kill himself, which. Well, that's, know, that's, a, yeah, that's the thing that's mind boggling is you're telling me that this is tremendously, if we're, if we're looking at it from the point of view of the, you know, the Catholic mythos that it's, it's, you know, populating, um, or residing in rather, um, you're telling me that this tremendously important position 
of the Sentinel. They just hand it to people who they're essentially like blackmailing because of their <laughs> yeah. sin. You're, you're telling me there's no, maybe that that's supposed to be some sort of um, comment about the Catholic church itself and how there's no actual pious people in it or something. But I, but like, it just boggles the mind. It's like, you're telling me there's not one fucking like, like priest or nun <laughs> out there who would be willing to take one for the, for humanity and be the, you know, the person who stands in the doorway like it's it's just it just kind of i don't know it's just it that's what and that's what i mean that there's like a mean spiritedness to this movie um both thematically and in some of the production stuff that just like kind of makes me i don't know uncomfortable and a little annoyed (laughs) at the end of the day (laughs) we can unpack we can unpack that now that we're getting to sort of the finale of the movie right in that you know, what initially before, like I said, I didn't know anything about the movie and hadn't done any research into it the first time I'd watched it. So you get this moment where it's essentially like the house itself is almost closing in on Allison, right? Because you have all of these uh, zombies, if you will, that are coming up from the bowels of the house and are following her up. And there's this massive horde of people that, you know, they're and again, it's go- I'm going to discuss this in a way differently than uh, I'm describing it now just because of learning about what was behind all this. But you see this drove of horrifically, um, I, won't, I guess, deformed people that are you know pursuing her. And it's all frightening. And I'm thinking, this is the most fantastic practical work. Where the hell was this for a majority of the movie? Because yeah. at the moment, initially, I'm kind of like, oh, man, this like is terrifying and it's grotesque and all of these things and it's very unsettling and uncomfortable and then i research into more of it and it's like oh this is not practical work this is actually you know a group of people that are actually people that have physical ailments that are disabled that yeah. have you know these uh deformities, deformities and whatnot. Or accidents and, yeah, yeah from accidents or from birth and it kind of gives the movie this really gross feeling with that last act and overall and you're just like it goes from being something that you thought was like a great example of the magic of movie making to something that feels very exploitative and that feels just like very gross. And the feeling of like, this feels not only like a shortcut, but like a morally bankrupting shortcut. Uh, The fact that you would include that to it. And, you know, Michael Winner has given an interview where he makes a point to be like, well, I I was the only person that would go eat lunch with these people because all the rest of the cast and the crew were horrified of them. And it's like, except that he didn't. Because yeah, then later right. he goes on to say, "I was going to, but you know, it was so hot that day." Which, like, I'm sorry, wait, what? Like, did you just have them eating outside and an abnormally like hot day while everyone else was inside? Like, oh, so your mortal compass. You know, it, it's strong until you know there's too much heat, and then it, you know, you, and 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 the the idea that he had Dick Miller as his, you know his special effects guy, who like I guess, um, like the the scene in the book, it's like they're bursting out of the walls and stuff, um, and they just didn't have they didn't have the budget to um, to do that, and then they didn't have enough they didn't have the budget to apply or the time to be able to apply um um practical makeup and stuff on on that many people for the scene so it was his idea to just like oh we'll just find some people who are like disfigured and stuff 
and we'll just use them. And and I guess in his book, he said they're very, very nice people. And they had a great time. Um, yeah, he interviewed which, all like, of them. They all had a great time, apparently. <laughs> they had a great time. And, you know, it's just the whole thing that's like, maybe, I mean, it would have been, you know, certainly an experience that they would not have otherwise, you know, like it, but it's, it just feels so exploitative, exploitative and, 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 and I know it's like a different era and a different time, but it's just, it's, uh, it's just, I don't know. It's just fucking gross. And that, that thing about the, the lunch just really, really just, oh my God. It, it is I, one I, of those... it's, it's in character for him for sure, but it's, well, that's the thing. Like the more digging you do and it's like, oh, maybe this was something that's a byproduct of the time, right? You know, you don't excuse it by saying that, but you at least you understand of where the thinking was in regards to like people in that era, how they viewed other people. And it was the norm. It's not great, but, you know, it's not the only instance where people were not nearly as sympathetic or really understood the fact that, you know, obviously exploiting others uh, is not something that uh, should be a trend in filmmaking or in society in general, right? And then the more you learn about Michael Winner and his relationship with the actors in this, I mean, uh, Chris Sarandon and uh, Christina, oh, what am I forgetting her name? Christina Raines, like mm. both of them said that I think neither of them watched the movie because they had such a shit time making it because it was constantly, whether it be, you know, being abused by Michael Winters or just the overall chaotic nature because, you know, uh, Michael Winters was arguing constantly, apparently, with um, Jeffrey Convitz, right? The two of them were clashing yeah. constantly, wanting to change things and all of this. And it makes for an experience that the more you learn about, you know, Michael Winters and his sensibilities and just the way he conducted himself in general, you're like, oh, no, he did this because it was cheaper and didn't see the moral side of it. And the fact that it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do something like this. Maybe you should think yeah. outside the realm of just you getting your picture made um, or, you know, spring for more of a budget based on your past successes to make the practical effects work within regards to the film. Um, so that definitely kind of puts a sour note on this film in a moment that was like I kind of did a 180 on and saying like, oh, man this looks fantastic. Like these practice and then realizing more about it. And you kind of just like, it has this gross connotation now tied to the entire yeah. production, which is a shame because it does overall, you know, whether you're talking personally or historically, that element does overshadow the film in a way that, you know, you can't not mention it. And at the same time, it just kind of makes you wonder like what other corners they cut in regards to certain elements. Um, and that's, which yeah. is unfortunate. That's the hard thing. It's you don't want to, and it's you know you don't, don't want to get like, I guess too hand wringy about it. But at the same time, it because it's there is I don't know. I've always been kind of like a a firm believer in um, taking like a piece of film or art, taking the into account the context of its the time it was made and you know um, kind of all the things that are involved with that. Um, so like I can understand if you're used to making exploitation films and are used to being like an economical um, mind, economic minded uh, like director that like you know people kind of just become dollar you know ones and zeros to you. Well, not you know coding, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so like 
I understand why it got to that, and but it's just like I just hope they're paid and people like they I hope they're paid and that it wasn't like a god awful experience for them because like it just feels like I just hope that lunch wasn't their payment. That's all I'm gonna say. Jesus Christ, and it probably fucking was. Like, let's be real. <laughs> right. Let's be well, real. That's the thing. Like, trying not to be hand wringing about it because again, you know, within historical conflict and you know consuming whether it be media or you know art in general from different time periods you have to take that in consideration at the same time when you learn that this guy is basically just an asshole it's like well it's a little harder when then when you learn about that and it's like oh this wasn't just a byproduct of the time this is just a guy that he's like treated yeah he's a prick he treated people like shit at the expense of his art or just in terms of like justifying his art of like, well, I have to, this needs to be the way I want it to be. So that gives me, you know, carte blanche to treat others like shit basically, Um, which it then becomes difficult to view the entire production with that same, you know, even handedness in terms of like, Oh, well, is this a byproduct or no, probably more than likely it's because he's a dickhead. <laughs> what a good point to uh <laughs> I mean that I think that seals it right there. That's a pretty good uh conclusion to I don't know. I don't like that's pretty much my thoughts on this this movie. Like I just it's um it's it's not something I like enjoy revisiting. Like I'm trying to I'm struggling now to remember why I even suggested we talk about it. <laughs> um but I did, and here we are. Um, and I'm sorry? No, or, please. No, I'm glad I, we, I think we had a good conversation about this. This is the thing. I think that this movie is more interesting to talk about than it is to watch necessarily, right? I think that this is yeah. the type of film that I see as a view into an era of filmmaking that I obviously was not there for. And, you know, personally don't have a great knowledge base of knowledge in. Like, I definitely need to watch more 70s movies, I think. Because if there was one era that I'm, you know, uh, cinematically illiterate in outside of some of the major ones. I have not seen a great deal of them, but I think that it gives us a look at the types of movies that feel reactionary to successes from that era in that genre and how that can either, you know, have diminishing returns or it can succeed. And, you know, this is one that I think falls somewhere in the middle because, you know, even the things that we've mentioned there's nothing in this that other than what we just got done discussing that I find to be especially egregious in terms of like bad filmmaking or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it, there's elements of it that don't work and there's elements of it that could have been done far better, but by no means is this like a schlocky train wreck of, it, from the seventies. Yeah. It's a slick. Well, it's, it's like what we see anytime there's, you know, successful, um, like, like, think about all, like, the kind of the Haunted House films that came out after the success of the first Conjuring. Um, and a lot of them come out from big studios. Like, it was it was a slick um, attempt by, you know, studio-made film that was attempting to capitalize on the success of other religious horror books slash films. And, um, and you know, it, it, is, it is what it is. I just think it's funny that on the... Uh, the Scream Factor release that came out a couple of years ago, um, on the back of the Blu-ray case, um, they quote someone who says that it's one of the best horror films of 1970s. <laughs> and I'm like, what? are you define best? Right. Because like off the top of my head, I can think like, I mean, you've got The Exorcist 
Alien, The Omen, um, Halloween, uh, Phantasm. Like those are five landmark films that like, do you really think that that movie belongs in, you know, in the same talks as like, I, I yeah, I think it's just, it's an interesting, um, yeah, it's an interesting glimpse into the kind of horror movies that were being made in the seventies and, and uh, some of the trends that, uh, that were in that scene at that time. I think it's interesting. It's it's interesting too. Like you find a director that is not versed in that realm of filmmaking, right? This was his first horror film, I believe. And the, like I have this quote from him where he said, uh, I think this was secondhand from the, uh, the author, Jeffrey Convitz, who said that Michael Winter basically said, I will make a film so horrifying, so disgusting. People will be fainting in their seats, which you know, it just not even being familiar with the source material based on what I know about the story that's being told in the film, I would never think that that is the direction that you would go with a movie like this because it has so much promise so early on. And if anything, yeah. it makes me want to read the book because of some of the things that we mentioned, like with, I'm sure Allison's character is far more complex than what is shown on screen. Um, and that's no fault of uh Christina Raines, right? I think yeah. that it's a character that is not given nearly as much as she should for a majority of the runtime. It's also yeah. the fact that when you're thinking about a film that is trying to do those things, you're kind of tapping into elements of far better films that we've mentioned that it just feels like those films were something like The Exorcist. It was like, sure, you could describe it as horrifying, disgusting, people faint in their seats, but the film itself doesn't feel like it was made solely on those reactions. It feels like a film that, you know, had far more wherewithal and how to have elicit those things, but in strengthening the character, strengthening the message on faith, on family, on, you know, demonic horror in general and religious Even just horror. It's style, like its style is very, you know, um, um, that documentary style that, that freaking shot it in was very deliberate and also unique to the time horror mo- horror movies weren't being done like that they're you know they're very stylized and but to have something presented like that in a very realistic way was completely unique it's just a shame i guess that the sentinel ends up feeling like a film that's best described by that quote and that there was an agenda behind it and the agenda in general with filmmaking it's like it should be striving to say something and to have I guess not all horror films, of course, have to have this message, but it just it feels like that you shouldn't have this kind of buzzword listing of, you know, reactions that you want from the audience when it's like, yeah, it's a horror movie. You should want to horrify people to varying (laughs) degrees. But it's like the fact that you're essentially constructing scenes with that in mind rather than, you know, a scene that complements the overall movie or the message or the purpose of the film. You know, you would hope that there's a little more to that than just like, being horrifying because no movie can be horrifying for 90 minutes straight, generally speaking. Yeah. I, I thought of a, of an, of a nice positive note to end this on <laughs> in terms of, and it's, I'm just going to read, read out loud. Some of the absolutely insane, um, um, actors and actresses that yep. appear in this movie, because this is the kind of movie where it's like the amount of random cameos for, people who are just getting their start or were already established stars um 
that's in this movie is just like kind of mind boggling. So, you know, obviously we have Chris Sarandon and um, Christina Raines, but we also have Martin, ba- I can never pronounce his name correctly, but Baslam, um, who is in like everything <laughs> from, from like Psycho to, um, I'm thinking of uh, um, Twilight Zone. Oh, Twilight Zone. To, I mean, just so many movies from like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, John Carradine, another incredible character actor. Ava Gardner, oh, who's an absolute classic actress. Burgess Meredith, obviously. Um, Eli Wallach, uh, Christopher Walken, Jerry Orbach, who this, what blew my mind was when I realized it was Jerry, like, I was like, oh, who's that guy? That looks like the guy from Law and Order. <laughs> so I look it up and oh yeah, it's Jerry Orbach from Law and Order. And then I found out he was the voice of the, uh, the, uh, the candle holder in uh, Beauty and the Beast. The French oh, like, really? oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know that. Blew my freaking mind. <laughs> anyway, and then we got Be- Beverly D'Angelo, um, Tom Berenger. Jeff Goldblum. Um, Jeff Goldblum. Oh, there was someone else who just blew my mind. Oh, Richard Dreyfus. Oh yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just like dude on the street. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 absolutely incredible how many people are in this movie, and it's a pretty nutty laundry list cool. of you know people that would <laughs> sprawl into big names, right? I think that it's definitely this film. I think in like that is being the quality of a filmmaker that you know it feels as if we're calling in a lot of favors to get people in this movie. You know, I guess when you talk about the pitch of it too, right? You're like, oh, well, it's going to be the next Rosemary Baby, Exorcist, Omen. And it's like, yeah, it's interesting just to see so many different character actors in it, but they don't necessarily feel like they're given a lot to do. Christopher Walken barely speaks. Jeff Goldblum is kind of just like... Most of his lines were dubbed afterwards. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things where it's like you've got people who are just getting their starts, like um, Beverly D'Angelo and Tom Berenger, who's in like very, uh, a very small part at the very end of the movie. Those are both those were their first film roles. So, so you've got you know some people who are getting their starts in film, and then you've got people like Ava Gardner, who it's you know they're past past their prime. Same with John Carradine, who are just like you know taking roles to work. So it's it's one of those movies where you can kind of get this interesting kind of a uh, cross section of um of of talent that like when you take a step back 20 years later you're just like wow they're all in this this one really <laughs> Well that's part of what's cool about watching movies like this that you know it's not going to end up being one of my favorites or one that I'd necessarily revisit but you know, it holds its place in horror history, whether it be the era that it's released in, whether it be, you know, the talent that's behind it, whether it be, you know, a film that's trying to emulate its far more successful peers in that area. Um, I think that it's important when you're talking about, you know, movies as much as we do that. And, you know, I think this is more in general about how people view movies, you know, Generally speaking, you would think a general audience would be interested in, you know, the best of the best from a genre or a subgenre, right? And sometimes I think it gets lost in the kind of reinforcement of why these are the standouts of the time period or of the genre. When you go back and you watch other movies that were trying to do things similar that Mm -hmm. were not nearly as successful. And that's something that I've tried to do a little bit more and just like being open to watching movies that I haven't heard necessarily 
terribly positive things about, but they were at least a byproduct of their era. And I think that's important. It gives you better perspective, I think, when I'm talking about movies, just to be like, well, you know, I could rag on this movie for something, but then go and look at this example of how much worse it off it could have been. Uh, and if anything, it yeah. makes me appreciate certain <laughs> movies uh, far much more than I did originally. 100%. If anything, this made me want to go rewatch um, uh, Rosemary's Baby and and The Exorcist. I mean, if if anything, the Sentinel achieves that and making you want to kind of reach out to those peers that you haven't uh, you haven't watched all too recently. But maybe it'll give you even more of a new appreciation for those that uh, I'm sure you already do. But listen, Pat, this was a pleasure, man, as always. Uh, I love yeah. chatting movies with you. And you always uh, you always recommend movies that maybe I had not previously <laughs> seen. Or, I mean, I'm thinking like of our chat about The Grudge, which was a movie that, you know, I fucking hated the first time I watched it. And yet <laughs> in watching it again and, you know, chatting with you about it, it was one that, you know, I saw had more merit to it than I originally did. And if anything, you know, chatting about The Sentinel, a film that I don't, we don't both don't, you know, have a great amount of admiration for. But I think <laughs> that, you know, it is a film that is a byproduct of its time when it was released, what it was trying to do. Um, and, you know, it does succeed in certain places, but maybe it furthermore reinforces like the enigma that were those films of the era that achieved so yeah. much more operating this same corner of, uh, of horror. But yeah, man, as always, I always love chatting with you and uh, I hope to do it again in the future. Yeah, man. I, I, this is, you know, it's always fun and I'm glad that my uh, picks aren't too, aren't too nutty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, hopefully, you know, number five, We'll 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 see how that goes if it, if you'll have me back. <laughs> Maybe, always, always. Maybe for number five, we'll uh, we'll pick one of your favorite movies that I haven't seen. All right, brother. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at Not Funny Jay. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>